Hello, my name is Paul Rogney, and I'm the host of the Drumming News Network. In recent years, handcrafted symbols seem to be a growing market. Rob Cook of Rebeats, author and creator of the Chicago Drum Show, believes that handcrafted symbols are the next frontier, much like the interest in custom drum manufacturing that took place in the early 1990s. May 20th and 21st of this year at the Chicago Drum Show, you will be able to meet and experience presentations on symbol making from each of these symbol craftsmen and on the 21st, a panel of all the craftsmen together. The series of interviews that I am doing are literally a discovery as it happens. I purposely did not do any, well, I hardly did any research on each of these symbol smiths ahead of time. I've custom built drums and my own drum hardware, but the idea of symbol crafting is something that seems part voodoo, craftsmanship, and passion. Three things that I have no interest in when it comes to actually creating a symbol. In each of these interviews, we get to see each of their own personalities. And like a true artist, even with similar approaches, their outcomes are completely different. On this episode, I speak with Timothy Roberts of Reverie Drum Company and Timothy Roberts Handcrafted Symbols. His symbols are made with the highest quality B20 bronze, hand-hammered, and laid into incredibly expressive and nuanced symbols for all styles. Whether you have an old symbol you'd like to rework, or you'd like a custom creation, Timothy is dedicated to bringing out the best a symbol has to offer. In addition to manufacturing drum symbols and percussion instruments, he's a new father. This will prove to be a very interesting episode. So let's get on with it. Well, Timothy, welcome uh, to, to the show. I just wanted to uh, have you on specifically to uh, talk in support of the Chicago Drum Show uh, panel, Symbol of Craftsmanship. Can you tell me about that a little bit? What, what's that panel going to be all about? Well, uh, so Rob Cook put it together, and uh, I think I talked to him at the Nashville show last year about it. Uh, and uh, it is going to be uh, a bunch of my buddies, a bunch of guys that I really respect, guys that when I got into this craft, I, I studied, guys that I really look up to. So it's going to be an honor to be on a panel with them and and we'll discuss symbols. We'll talk about, hopefully we'll talk about the the movement that seems to be happening right now in the mm -hmm. indie symbol Smith world and how there seems to be kind of a groundswell of this, this new thing that people are discovering, like that, that there's these independent makers that make uh, symbols, handcraft symbols, get blanks from Turkey and do the whole thing that Spiz did. So it should be fun. That's really cool. Yeah. It sounds very exciting. So before we get into that, I want to get, learn more about you specifically. Um, and like I said, we're just doing a rapid fire. We're going to do it fast. See if we can actually pull off a half hour, everybody. So this Good is why it. it's going real fast. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> um, specifically, uh, what got you, what, what, how did you start drumming? Like, did you start drumming on a drum kit for school? What got you interested in drums? It was, uh, it was church. So I, my dad was a, a music minister and, uh, he was a band director. And ever since I was probably three or four, he noticed that I like to put pots and pans together. It's kind of the story of every drummer. It's like put pots yeah. and pans together, bang on and make drum sets. Um, there was one story where I, I took a pair of drumsticks when my parents weren't looking and I went to the family piano and I just went to town for like five minutes and we had this piano that had all these, uh, all the keys were chipped at the edges. So they had all these sharp jagged edges from when I decided to make a drum set out of a piano. Um, and I officially started taking lessons at, uh, at 11 and, uh, 
church was a great way to just get into playing music with other people, which has been kind of the the thing I've always aimed for. I don't really want to be a drummer that just is in my drum room playing by myself. I always want to have that connection with other musicians. So it gave me experience early on mm-hmm. and uh, that led me towards uh studying music at uh, university. And from there I discovered jazz and it was just kind of off to the races for me. Okay. So specifically you kind of focus on jazz yeah. or do you focus on more than that? Are you into rock or. I was, uh, I, so I church kind of in that world, it's, it is kind of rock and roll. And so I, mm-hmm. I, I started with rock. I, I loved rush. I just, I just, Neil Peart was my, my guy. I played mm-hmm. along to every rush record I could. Um, and that was really where I fell in love with drums first was in that genre of music and specifically with that band. I love Chicago. I love the Eagles and um, mm-hmm. yeah, Skinner and all that kind of stuff. I, I was, I was into that and, and I discovered a, uh, a buddy rich uh, big band album. And that was the first time I'd ever heard jazz drumming and it was just on a whole separate level. And it was mm-hmm. like, I got to figure out how to do that. Uh, which kind of led me into jazz. So I, still have kept that love for all styles of music. I think I, I really did study jazz more than anything else, but I think I I would rather be more of a holistic musician and, and take in take in all styles and, and really learn from anything and everything that I can. Yeah. Well with that, well, who are your first or initial influences on drumming that inspired so, you to want to play? Yeah, yeah. Neil Peart was a big one. I I love Dave Matthews Band. Uh, so Carter Beaufort was a big one. <laughs> and when I when I went into jazz was really when I started studying like the lineage of music, the lineage of of drumming, and and from there I I discovered Elvin and Tony and Philly Joe, and it was like that was kind of my world for a a, a pretty long time. And uh, and then obviously you get into the modern guys and. Currently, I would say guys like Brian Blade and and Dave King, mm. uh, Mark Juliana, guys like that really have inspired me. And and when you when you study them, you can't help but go back and see, like go back and study what they studied, and and you you start to see this connecting line with all of drummers, all of all all of music. There's always a thread, and you know you you can't you, you can't study Bill Stewart without studying Roy Haynes. You know what I mean? And it just mm-hmm. kind of goes back. And um, that's where you can really like take in influences from everywhere. So I have very specific drummers that I love, but I really try not to harp too much on one guy or like a handful of guys. I want to keep it open so that I don't get locked into trying just to mimic or copy another player. Well, you spoke about uh, Philly Joe Jones specifically. What, what do you see about him that why he was such a great contribution to drumming? Uh. I would say like, I would say his finesse, I kind of put him and Max Roach in a similar category of just their, their, um, the, the way, how refined their drumming is and how, how technical it feels, but it's effortless. Like the mastery just feels like effortless and it flows out of them. And, um, I feel like it's the most classy refined kind of drumming. That's kind of what I love about Philly Joe. And then if you get into something like, a drummer like Elvin, you can't help but just talk about like the earthy, raw, organic power that he has. And it, it kind of sits in a different category for me. And then you go to Tony and it's just like the power and the precision, you know, and I love how like every player you can kind of boil them down 
you know, to, you can take a couple descriptor words and, and that's like what you like about that drummer. And then right. from there, you can kind of piece together the kind of drummer you want to be and sort of take influences and you become kind of a, an amalgam of all the people that you love, which that's my favorite part of this, uh, this whole art form, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly it. You know, you, you talk about like some of these old, older jazz players. And I, um, when I was younger, I used to get modern drummer, loved modern drummer. But the problem is I had no reference point for these jazz players. So your introduction, introduction, introduction to those jazz players was specifically primarily through school. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely okay. at university. I had some really great professors, uh, a guy named Rick Dilling, who's uh, based out of Asheville, North Carolina. He, I went to school at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. And so he was the drum set professor there. Also mm-hmm. a guy named Byron Hedgepath. These guys were, uh, they they really introduced me to a lot of these players. And then, you know, you can get introduced to one drummer and then start there and then go on a YouTube rabbit trail and find <laughs> a bunch of other people. So yeah. that's kind of what, did I, what I ended up doing in college. That's fantastic. No, I, I that's the only part I didn't care for about modern drummer is that in retrospect, now what I do is I pull out those magazines now and then I look up the drummer to see what they were doing so I can have an understanding of what their contribution was. So yeah. when, you, when you mentioned those players, I was just kind of exciting because I know you're a little bit of a younger guy and uh, compared to me. <laughs> and, um, you know, you have that respect of, of uh, the, the founders of jazz, so that we have modern jazz. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned a couple of modern, um, con, you know, continued inspirations, Dave King specifically. Uh, can you mention a couple of words about Dave King that you maybe stand out to you that why you think he's such a, a standout player today? Uh, so I, I got to meet Dave. He came to my shop uh, a, a couple months back and we got to geek out about symbols. I got <laughs> to show him some of the stuff that I did. And that was like a, a pretty huge moment for me. Cause I've been, I've been studying his music for over a decade and just, I love how playful he is and how he's got such uh he's got great technique. He, he is, he's got uh, a, an effortlessness to his playing uh, he's got a classy refinedness to his playing. You know, he can do all that stuff, but it's like his playing is kind of quirky. It's like it, it almost, um, it, it invites you into it. It kind of makes me feel like I can, uh, I can do something like that. You know what I mean? Like it, I, I listen to Tony Williams and I'm like, I will never play like that. There's nothing, right. <laughs> there's no amount of like practice or whatever. I'm never going to be like that. I listen to Dave King and I feel like invited into the music and I kind of feel inspired to uh develop my own voice because his voice is so distinct right and and unique yeah. and um that's that's probably what i love most about his playing i i, I would say similar things about uh brian blade too it's just okay you, you feel invited into this sense of uh I, I can be a part of this lineage of music like i don't have to be i don't have to have all the chops and all the technique in the world i can develop my ear and develop a sense of musicality and i can play simply and it can be really inspiring to listen to. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's... Oh, it, it completely does. Because what's, what's interesting about Dave King is he's a local guy uh, in Minnesota here. I'm from Minnesota. And cool. um, uh, my one of my partners in this, he used to be a roommate of his. And oh, cool. uh, he's also a phenomenal player. And when I see Dave King play now, it's significantly different than what I've heard about him. He's just this drummer who can just blow the drum set apart you know what i mean yes and I, as uh in his more recent professional performances i haven't seen that yet and i, I just i wish i could experience that because he's got such an explosive ability of power creativity mm-hmm. and when people watch him he just can't 
you know, you can't take your eyes off of him. So yeah, uh, you don't know what he's going to do next. Like he's, he's like a total lack of cliche. It's, it's like a Jack DeJanet. Like that's, Mm. I think of that Jack DeJanet and I think of like, that guy has no licks somehow. Somehow he's like lickless. I don't know. Like Bill Bill Stewart is like all licks. You know what I mean? You hear him play a, like a role, a Tom role. And, and I've heard him play that same exact Tom role in five different songs and five different records, but you listen to Jack D and it's like, he's constantly creating something fresh and new that I've never heard him do. Um, Mm. I kind of think of Dave King the same way. So Um, you might might hear a baby screaming in the background. We just had a kid, my wife and I. So, Oh yeah. Congratulations. I'm sorry. I forgot to say that. That's so awesome. So is this your first kid? First kid. Yeah. We're, um, we're kind of in that, you know, figuring it out. She's like two weeks old, barely two weeks old. Just like, you know, what is it like to have two hours of sleep? You know, how are we going to survive? It um, doesn't change. Yeah, yeah, that's what I hear. It's like, yeah, get used to it. You're going to stay here for a while. So, yeah, well, the blessing of them, it. the, the blessing crazy. is so, so worth it. So, oh, yeah, totally. It's amazing. Yeah. And you can warp their future with playing drums too. So, yes. <laughs> I like got to get one of my kids. Um, hooked into the whole idea of drumming. So well, we'll see if I can work on the other two. <laughs> yep. There you go. There you go. So talking about this, it, you know, to make the leap from being interested in playing and being a fan of, of drumming to creating the instrument, uh, you create, you, you manufacture drums and you're creating mm-hmm. custom on-demand cymbals. So first, can we talk about the drum set? What yeah. drew you into wanting to craft drum sets? Yeah, so I I played out of university, really short little history. I, I out of university I played professionally, semi-professionally for about five years. I was a I was fortunate enough to do a little bit of touring, uh, got to see the country, got to see the world even, got to go travel overseas and do some fun stuff. Uh and it was cool and all, but I, I've always wanted to be a family guy. I've I've always wanted I always wanted to be married and to have kids and kind of have a quiet, settled life. And uh traveling was cool and exciting at first, but then I I started to realize, wow, this doing this year after year would kind of wear on me. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a young man's game. I am still young, obviously, but like, it's a young man's game. And I kind of wanted to build something that, uh, that could keep me at home and keep me around my family. And, uh, that's just like probably the most important thing in my life. Uh, way more important than drums or cymbals is just family. So, okay. uh, I, so that was on one side of me. I was kind of having that experience, but then on another side, I, I hit into some of the difficulties of, uh, you know, you have, you start to deal with interpersonal relationships. And so I, I took the drum chair from this guy who was the best friend of the band leader. They had a falling out. So he left and then I got the drum chair. It was given like a, a verbal, uh, you know, confirmation that I had all the gigs next year. And so, I made plans to move across the country. It was going to be like my full-time touring gig. I was going to do some booking and admin on the side just a bit. So it was, it was going to be a full-time job to, mm-hmm. to play drums with this group. Uh, and then just out of nowhere, I got the call that he decided he wanted to go back to his old drummer because they had patched things up. And, and so I was a young guy and I'd been out of the scene in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina for about six to eight months. So people forget about you pretty quick, you know, mm-hmm. when you're, when you're unavailable. So, uh, I, I had to move back in with my parents. I was super dejected and, and a little hopeless. And like, what do I do with my life now? And, um, I had always wanted to just make a snare drum. It was something that I thought would be kind of interesting to be able to Mm -hmm. 
like hold something that I put together. I don't really have any uh, background in metallurgy or woodworking or oh, okay. anything like that. I, you know, I, I grew up just playing outside in the woods and, you know, and playing music. That was like all I really ever did. So I had to have like a crash course in, in just general woodworking stuff. And I, I scoured YouTube. I, I signed up to some some uh, online resources to learn how to like DIY drum build. And, and I did that for, um, for a little while. And I, I, when I made my first snare drum, it was like almost an instant connection. Like, this is what I want to do. Like something uh, with music being uh, so intangible, you can practice hours and hours and then you just play a song or you play a gig. You don't really have anything to hold at the end of it. You're kind of, you leave <laughs> going, did I play well, or did they like me or did they not? And it feels kind of abstract where, right. Whereas like making yeah. a snare drum, it's like I I make it and then I hold it. I'm like, wow, <laughs> I did this. This is kind of cool. Um, so that connection, I really like, I really connected with that experience of being able to hold something that I crafted. And uh, I've always been more obsessed with cymbals than drums. I, I was always kind of intimidated by tuning drums and never felt like I really had a good handle on even how to do it. Uh, but I just didn't know it was possible to work on symbols. I didn't know it was possible to make symbols. It, it felt like such a mystical craft and, uh, and an unattainable thing to do. Uh, so I didn't really like explore that option. I was like, well, I can make drums. That's I'll start there. Uh, and then things kind of grew from there. And I started making percussion accessories. I had a, a cracked symbol that it was like the first symbol I ever got. And I cracked it. I was super sad about it. And I just had a metal grinder lying around for some reason. I was like, what if I just cut this thing up and like made little jingly things like how, and then I was like, okay, how would I hang it? I could hang it on a crash symbol and it make like a, like a trashy effects thing. And so I figured I could just punch holes, put a little dog tag through it and I could hang it on different parts <laughs> of the kit. Yeah. And all of a sudden from there, it was like, okay, how do I get crack symbols? So I started messaging all my buddies, like, do you have any crack symbols? I'll, I'll, you know, pay shipping if you could just give them to me. And then that was what launched stack ring percussion, which is uh, percussion accessories, percussion products made of recycled symbol material and steel and all kinds of cool metals. And, and then that was a get another gateway into the symbol world. Cause I would get, I would get crash symbols that had little small cracks and just take my grinder and just like scoop out the crack. And then all of a sudden it was a playable symbol. Hmm. Um, and then from there it's like, well, what if I hammer it? And then I started messing with that. Then it was like, oh man, what if I had a lathe one day, eventually I ended up building a lathe and then it was super dangerous. And, and, you know, symbol smithing is like an incredibly dangerous thing. It's amazing. I still have both my arms and all my fingers and toes, but, um, anyway, so from there it was kind of a snowball effect and I just kept going, what if I could do this? What if I could do that? And then eventually I would try it and fail my way into what I'm doing now, which is uh, symbol smithing. So you're definitely standing out in the field of what you're doing, which is pretty remarkable. Oh, and unlike some other people, what you're doing, you're actually asking to people come to you and, and you um, build per their specific request. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about, um, first of all, you mentioned earlier that you might buy, you get blanks from, from Turkey. Is that, is that the case for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you explain that process and, and uh, what's the advantage of that versus trying to smelt it and pound it out yourself? Yeah. So um, as of right now, there, there are some things changing, but as of right now, the only foundry in the U S is Zildjian and Zildjian is not going to talk to me. If I go to them and say, hey, can I buy <laughs> they're not going to talk to me. Um, 
which is fine. I, I understand it. Um, there are some of the some of the old guard independent symbol smiths were able to get blanks from Sabian. Um, I, I believe Matt Bettis was able to source his blanks from Sabian a little bit, but okay. as it stands now in Turkey, that's that's where all of the foundries are. That's where the where a lot of symbols are produced. There's a lot of companies that will just approach a a, a foundry in Istanbul and they'll get them to make symbols and then they ship them over and they stamp a, a logo on them, whatever logo kind of OEM stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Turkey is where there's this really rich lineage of symbol making that goes back hundreds of years. Uh, so for me, I, uh, I was introduced to Dave Collingwood, who is an, another amazing independent symbol Smith. He's going to be at the panel. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a really good buddy of mine. He, he trained me and did a lot of like, um, he actually really helped me kind of clear away a lot of the um, a lot of the stuff that can be kind of pitfalls when you're learning this craft. And so he uh, gave me a couple references of some foundries to reach out to. And it was as simple as just sending an email and saying, Hey, I like to buy blanks. And for those Turkish guys, I mean, they, you know, if they can just, you know, stamp a blank out or, or whatever and just, and sell it and they don't, you know, do anything else with it. They're, they're happy to do that. So mm-hmm. Um, it's fairly easy to source blanks. It's shipping is obviously kind of crazy, but you know, uh, that was a fairly easy thing, easier than I thought it would be just to kind of send an email and then all of a sudden, okay, I got blanks at my front door. I can start hammering. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get to the next phase, uh, the other interesting thing right now is that, uh, I'm getting ready to go to NAM, and, mm-hmm. uh, most of the large companies have pulled out of NAM, And one of the biggest issues is the cost of doing business nowadays and specifically the fluctuation in metal costs in some cases is seven times what it used to be um how how is the fluctuation in cost and specifically precious metal taxes and import costs impacting you compared to a year ago it's uh i would say for me i've seen uh, probably about like a 30 percent price increase. Oh, okay. Um, so it's not, it hasn't been as bad as it has been for some, mm-hmm. for some companies. Cause I've, I've heard of like, you know, hundred, 150% increases in prices. I have had uh, really crazy increases in uh, drum hardware costs. That's been a huge thing. Um, and I think with, with COVID and kind of what, what happened, what happened in our world with COVID was really, really detrimental to the big companies because they had, they have just such large overhead. Mm-hmm. Um, and the benefit, the benefit of a company like mine or, you know, a bunch of the other boutique makers out there is, is we can be a little bit more flexible because our overhead is lower. So, mm-hmm. um, especially with my company, because I have different brands, I've always been able to kind of fluctuate in between, uh, the brands depending on what was happening in the market. So, there have been times where drum sales were really dry and, mm-hmm. you know, either I'll push marketing into the drums and try to get them back up, or I'll just focus on the cymbals or focus on the percussion accessories and things can kind of fluctuate in that way. And that's really hedged uh, me against the risk uh, involved with, you know, just a lot of the crazy upheaval in the, in the market today. So um, I'm really fortunate. I didn't intend to do that. It kind of just, I, I sort of like fell into that mode and it's worked out really well for us. So. Well, that's fantastic. And again, that's one of the strengths of what you're doing. Um, but I was going to just quickly not to drone on about the cost, but I, I want people to understand that you know, it's like everything's different yeah. now than even when it was a year ago. I just yeah. met up, uh, have you ever heard of GPI uh, 
rims mounts. You know, yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, Gary Gogger, who invented rims, is a, is a friend of mine, and we just got together. And he about a year ago, he stopped selling or producing new rims mounts specifically because aluminum costs went up seven times in one year. I mean, that's just it's insane. And so I also custom build. I used to custom build drums. Now I'm I'm focusing back on hardware again. And um, what the difficulty is, is just, yeah, the cost of just raw materials, especially when I make something American made. Um, it's hard to find a foundry in America anymore that that offers every type of metal. Uh, yeah. It's just a it's very weird time right now. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, I want to go on further about that. But in just specifically, <clears throat> it's an interesting impact on, on profits nowadays and availability um, yeah. and fluctuation in costs. Uh, so you, you get the... What was the process of, <clears throat> excuse me, developing your technique in symbol craftsmanship? Mm. That's, I mean, Tons that's gonna... of failure. Tons of just like screwing things up and going, man, I wish I hadn't <laughs> done that. Uh, I just ruined that. I just, you know, you just kind of like, you just take hundred dollar bills and you just chuck them in the toilet and then you just, you just flush it. That's, um, but in all seriousness, it's, it is a lot of failure, but it's like every, every time you do something that doesn't work, you, you calculate, you take, okay, well, what if I had done this differently? And then you try it again and you, and you make adjustments. And it, it really has for me been uh, mostly surrounding doing modifications. So I didn't really touch on that, but I started okay. with modifying symbols before I ever made an original. Mm -hmm. And I probably modified close to 500 symbols before I ever hammered a blank. Okay. So I was, I had seen every type of symbol, uh, Every every brand, every type of symbol had come through my shop. So I was like constantly taking a look at the profile, taking a look at the bell, seeing what kind of hammering was done, and then taking my, you know, limited skills at the time and, and just, you know, pounding on it and trying to see if I could adjust or morph the sound in some way. So uh, that was really a great, a great entryway into the world of symbol smithing for me was just modifying symbols and it's amazing just how little uh, you, you how how little work you can do to drastically change the sound of an existing symbol, um, and so it it was just a it was a crash course for me, and and I still do modifications all the time. I, I have probably twenty to forty mods come through my shop every month, and I've got an apprentice that helps me with that kind of stuff, and um, that's kind of a little that's another kind of little side hustle that you can have to sort of help help you in this crazy world of this cra crazy industry just to make sure you can feed yourself and, you know, keep a roof over your head. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that's, that, that's been the, the, the way for me has been a lot of failure, a lot of, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. And then a lot of learning and, and, and um, I think a healthy dose of obsession with symbols has, <laughs> has really helped me too. So <laughs> No, that's fantastic. Um, so I guess where I'm kind of going with this is like, who's your customer specifically? What kind of person is your customer? What are they a looking for? It, yeah, I would say that um, my customer is mostly, mostly jazz guys or guys that just have a little, they just, I don't really deal with too many rock and roll dudes. Like mm -hmm. I, and, and this is no, like by no means a slight against rock and roll dudes. I just find that like there are guys that just, they're just, they sit down at the drums and they just want to like, they just want to uh, express themselves and they don't really think too much about like what they're hitting and mm. it's all meant to be loud and just in your face and powerful. And I love that kind of drumming. 
Um, but I, I've found that my customers like really attuned to the sound of their symbols. And they're like, you know, I had a guy in the shop the other day and we were, we were in my shop for about three hours, just tweaking this one symbol that he had. Uh, and it was like, what about this? I'm see- I'm hearing this one frequency. That's a, a major third above this one. And it's kind of competing with this dissonant tone over here. And like, how can we adjust that? So and that's another way that I've I feel like I've been able to develop is just by having really amazing customers that that really know their stuff. Uh, so it's a lot of like guys that are really in in tune with the sound of their instruments and they're really looking for something that um, that can help them express their voice. You know, until we were talking tonight <clears throat> or today, I mean, um, uh, you mentioned you have like thirty to forty customers or mods a month on symbols. And for a handcrafted or modified symbol, it just, it's amazing to me that there's that much of a customer base. So I'm wondering what has changed in the music and, you know, the drumming community where they want to express themselves differently. Have, have you talked to drummers about that? Yeah, I I have. And I've talked to a lot of my other independent symbol smithing buddies about this as well. And I think it kind of gets into the history of, of symbol making and kind of, uh, what has happened in the last 60 plus years mm-hmm. to lead us where we are. And I, I'll see if I can like really condense this and just do like a <laughs> super bare bones. I'm not saying everything that happened, but mm-hmm. essentially you've got, you know, the old, old stamp and intermediate stamp and new stamp, old K's you've mm-hmm. got older A's you've got these two zillion entities fighting each other. And then in the seventies, you have this, this massive change in music where things get uh, very electrified and loud. Mm-hmm. And so manufacturers start making instruments to accompany the fact that like that music is just so much louder. Now we have all these electric guitars and like electric basses and stacks and, and, you know, eighties hair metal bands that are just like, they blow your face off. They're so loud. <laughs> uh, so, so the cymbals just got super thick. The bells got really big and bright and cutting and, all along there's been this like this this group of jazz musicians that still play in cafes that still play in in quieter settings they're still playing with no monitors they're just listening to an acoustic bass like how are you supposed to hear an acoustic bass over top of a drum set it requires such immense technique uh and it requires certain kinds of instruments so uh that's where you have this uh there's always been this desire for these older k zildjian cymbals which there is a fervor surrounding those symbols now and the, how, how valuable they are um, and all of that. But really that those guys were doing the old K Zildjian's were made in the same way that these independent symbol Smiths are making symbols now. So it's, it's a, it's an artisan sitting down and hammering a symbol into shape and lathing it. Uh, and, and you get a much more human element. Oftentimes those symbols are a little bit quieter in nature. They're lower pitched, they're darker, they're more smoky and complex, all the things that jazz guys and, and Americana folk, all kinds of music that there are rock and roll guys that love dark, smoky, complex sounding symbols, you know? Um, so we've had this kind of uh, pendulum, pendulum swing backwards towards these older vintage sounds and in, I would say that's been the last 20 years we've been seeing that happen, this pendulum swing back. So you've got all these Turkish companies like Agop, you've got Minel and Peisty and Bosphorus and all these companies that make really dark, thin, 
symbols because there's such a demand for uh, these more expressive <clears throat> instruments that just the instruments that aren't just one dimensional and they're not just, you know, loud, whatever, however you hit it, it's going to be loud. Right. You know, they, they want symbols that you can play really softly, but then you can really dig in and it'll go with you there. And it can be really ex as expressive as you can be as a drummer. So mm -hmm. I find that that's where, um, that's where the, that's where people are nowadays. And so you kind of have a lot of the big companies scrambling to try to meet the demand of that and their different companies are doing it with different degrees of success, I would say. Um, but oftentimes I, I, I modify a lot of symbols from major brands that are the top of the line symbols that they make. And it's, you know, you spend $700 on a ride. You think it's, you think it's going to sound good. It's going to be right. well balanced. And that isn't always the case. Um, so I, there's a lot in there. I hope that answers the question. No, it, it does. It's, it's fantastic. And it's fascinating. It kind of makes me think about boutique drum manufacturing. So years ago, before that became more of a thing, I was, I was building drums way back in the 80s. And I learned from a, a craftsman um, about the quality of, of actual drum making. Not, not actually constructing the shell, but like, you know, even if, even if you bought a Keller shell, um, what's weird is that you hear about different people saying that Keller shells bad or good. Um, but what it, what it really comes down to is a craftsman of what do they do with that shell to make it good? And then the Absolutely. second complaint is, you know, if they don't totally match the shells, like, so what I used to do is I used to, I was going to be an actual distributor for Keller before they sold everyone. And I was going to do specifically, um, uh, external finishes or plies of wood that were more exotic, um, because they didn't want to, they didn't want to house all that and do all that kind of stuff. And I had kind of a pulse on all that, but in order to really match a set, you got to have the same tonal tone to each shell, and then you have right. to match the finish. And it really came down to a level of craftsmanship and not just the functional manufacturing of the object itself. And like you're talking about fine-tuning a cymbal, it's not unlike fine-tuning a drum set. Um, not at all. I was going to say, that's that's a great point. It's like that, uh, you see that video of John Good, you know, tone matching the guy from dw mm. like tone yep. matching the shells he used to do that at dw that's that's a huge point i think that uh bigger bigger companies really in in a lot of ways it's not a slight against them they just don't have the capacity to have that level of quality there if you know if they're going to meet their price point so that's that, that if you're going to pay 500 for a, a drum set you know, you're, you're the quality level. It's not going to be crafted. Well, it's going to be crafted to just get it out the door. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, um, so that's a really good point. Well, yeah. And it was so funny. You talk about John Good and how they totally do that. You know, the, 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 uh, the quality drum manufacturer and, I, and primarily the drum manufacturers that I'm talking about are people who actually own drum shops and they had to do the repairs for the drummers yeah. when they're on tour because there are no drum techs. And they kind of developed a process of matching and tonality. That's kind of where we have the understanding of today of crafting drum shells mm -hmm. and, um, or actually <clears throat> refining drum shells. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. And what's interesting is that that idea of pounding on a shell to get the note has been around since the fifties. And if you look at old pictures of drummers in the studio, a lot of times you'll see they'll have a note on the drum head or in the shell. And maybe every drum looks different, but specifically the, sh the set was balanced in the studio and that's the number one issue I have with craftsmen today is that, you know, they, they buy the shells, but they don't match the tones. And so mm -hmm. I get called yeah. in so often to recording studios and, and drum shops and the set won't, it's not consistent. Well, it's because tonally they don't match. Yeah. And 
taking that same concept, let's say somebody came to you and, and wanted to have a, um, a set of symbols, or if they want to match a symbol specifically to their set, is it something you kind of have to listen to what they want, or do you kind of go by what the, the person comes to you and, and says they want? Yeah, it's both. So it's, okay. it's, it was symbols with drums. It's a little bit more straightforward. I find mm -hmm. like when someone's going for a particular sound, uh, because there are the 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 factors of the heads and how they tune and how they play on the back end is such a huge part of that process. So that yes. I, I know if I get a certain, I've got a certain like quality level that I hit with my drums, and I kind of know from there I have to let it go. And it's and there's going to be so much that's going to vary on how uh, experienced the drummer is with tuning their own drums or playing their own drums, mm -hmm. and that's really going to affect. And I I try to do. Um, I try to educate and have as much teaching materials as possible for customers on that end. So that if they're like, I, I can't really get this snare to sound the way I want, I'll go in and I'll say, well, how's your bottom snare head tensioned? How are your snare wires tensioned? Are they too tight and your bottom head's too loose? Mm. Is that what's going on? Maybe you need to balance this more. Um, but all that to be said with symbols, it's like a whole nother level of subjectivity that almost baffles the mind I find. And, and I think drummers all have different, different ideas of what they mean when they say certain buzzwords. No, complete, so yes. Yes. Yeah, so, well, with the drum set, I, and I, I'm not trying to jump on you here, but um, the, the thing is the reason why I'm excited. You're kind of going down this road is that I always feel a symbol is more of a representation of your sound than a drum set is because yeah. I can hear one drummer play 50 different drum sets and it sounds like the same drummer, but, the uh that symbol they specifically use is the difference and and yes. uh, is finding that tonality so i'm sorry not, not jumping there but yeah, how, yeah it's just such an interesting process that you have to you could actually take a top level symbol and further refine it yeah um, that, that's just a really cool process so can you talk a little bit about that like you know there's lathing a symbol there's hand hammering a symbol i can't i can only imagine having a 20 to 22 inch object hurling into the, you know rotating yeah. at a high velocity what that's got to be like yeah it's, a little bit about that yeah it's um so kind of kind of along the same lines like when you, when you get to symbols you also you're dealing with such a wide range of what people mean when they say words but then you're also dealing with the thing that is the most personal to them mm -hmm. so like you said it's the it is the thing that kind of defines people's sound is like their symbols mm -hmm. you know like I, I when i think of bill stewart I can't think of Bill Stewart and not think of like the cymbal sounds he gets, you know, right. I do think of his drum sounds and I think those are just as, uh, just as relevant and, and important, but my mind goes to like that cymbal sound and how does he get that level of click out of his ride cymbal patterns? Like how does it sound that woody and, and smoky and complex? Um, so when people come to me and they're asking about either having a cymbal modified or, or having me commission one, they give me references. They tell me, I ask them for the kind of stick that they use. I, I would love to see them play. So I'm like, if you have a video of yourself playing, I would love to watch that. So uh, with that, there's just, there's like, there's a whole nother level of, of, of things that I have to try and think about because I'm trying to almost put myself in their shoes and pretend like I'm them. And I try to think like they do. So I take like the emails that we, we go back and forth and I try to decipher you know, when they say dark, what are they actually meaning? Like their dark might be bright to me. So that's where I can take a look at the type of playing that they have, the sticks that they use, any references that they send. Uh, and then the other level, and this might be going too deep, but this is kind of where my mind goes, is when they send me a recording, 
and they say, I really love this cymbal sound. I then have to go in and kind of try and interpret what does that cymbal sound like in the room? Because recording is just going to change how that cymbal translates in such an unbelievable way. You know, the great ref- the great example is the Nefertiti ride, Tony Williams. Like mm. that cymbal is, is such a sought after sound. And that cymbal probably would not sound good to the majority of people that love that cymbal sound on the record, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So if they were to actually sit behind that cymbal, that cymbal was actually pretty daggum heavy. And so most drum, most jazz drummers that are like the Nefertiti ride, if they sat behind it and played it, they'd be like, Ooh, this is too pingy. This is too bright. This is too shrill. This is too loud. Uh, but then you'd be like, well, actually that's the Nefertiti ride. That's the one that, that you, that you love, but it's, it's through, it's through Tony's impeccable playing. It's through, you know, the recording technology that existed in that time frame, and then how it translates through our modern devices, you know, and, and there's all these levels of, of um, there's all these filters that this stuff kind of has to go through to get to our ears. And then we make the judgment about what, what we're hearing and if it is a good sound or a bad sound. And so, you know, for me, I, I kind of see that like commissions and when people come to me with requests, it's a really dangerous thing to undertake because uh, there, there are so many subjective qualities to sound. And so with that, I kind of enjoy the danger, you know, I, I enjoy the, the kind of like well, the discovery uh, you like the, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I enjoy the, the, uh, yeah, the, the cure, I, I, I like, I have a curious, curious mind about like, how is this going to turn out? Like, I, I don't even really know. Like I, this person <laughs> wants me to make an Elvin Jones ride. Let's see how it turns out kind of thing. Wow. Um, so that could be, that could be very, uh, anxiety inducing, mm-hmm. but I, I kind of choose to just have fun with it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I gotta say that that's it is it's it's just gotta be such a tricky thing um because it, the one thing that was interesting to me is that depending on the symbol company and depending on the era even with the same model the symbol 16 inch crash can sound completely different on how they balance the um the metals going into it so um it is so subjective uh to what people want and hear um and it's just, I don't know, it's just, it's amazing. This is such a whole new world to me. Uh, I heard about people custom building gongs and I've heard about people doing that and where they actually just take a big hunk of brass and they start hammering it you know, and welding it together. And the symbol, what the instrument is with the symbol is just such a different thing than yeah. any other element. Um, I guess I want to just talk quickly about the camaraderie between other symbol manufacturers because there isn't necessarily a whole lot of camaraderie in the drum building world. Um, mm-hmm. it seems like there's a lot of competition and we you know, but with the symbols, it sounds like a whole, whole interesting family. Can you talk a little bit about that? The community? Yeah. Yeah. I, so I mentioned Dave Collingwood. Dave is a, is a buddy of mine. He, he has a Patreon where he teaches people how to make, how to make symbols. So you can come to him with, with zero, uh, zero know-how or knowledge and you can sign up for his Patreon and he'll, he'll walk you through step one and get you to that place of being able to actually, craft your own symbols. There is, um, there's just a group of independent makers that, uh, that we all have just become friends from meeting at trade shows and we share information. I was on the phone with a, a symbol Smith buddy of mine yesterday, talking to him about his lathe. And I wanted to know more about it. I want to know how he designed it. 
you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and he's just like, absolutely. Let me go back to my shop. He was like walking down the street, <laughs> leaving his shop. He That's turned cool. right back around. We FaceTimed. He was showing me all the stuff that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Francis has become a friend of mine and he just texts me and he's like, Hey, how's your kid doing? And, and I've called him and, and, and asked him like, Hey, you, you, you know, you met, uh, well, you had the Nefertiti ride. Like, tell me about that ride. What, what was it like in person? And he's just totally free to share. Um, I think what we're realizing, and and this is kind of the cool aspect of the indie symbol Smith world right now is mm-hmm. we we're all kind of realizing, and, and we've been sort of unintentionally creating this atmosphere where there, there isn't a lot of cutthroat competition between the makers. And we kind of are, are trusting in the fact that uh, there is enough, there's enough for all of us. You know what I mean? There's the symbol market in the world is like, I don't know, $50 million industry or something like that. That number might be wrong, but I, th- I heard something around that like a $50 million industry. Mm-hmm. And the big guys obviously have the biggest chunks of those, but the the number, the hundreds of thousands of symbols that are sold every single year, there's so many drummers out there buying, selling, searching for symbol sounds. And there's really relatively such a small amount of, of us in indie makers out there and the people discovering us are starting to see like Paul Francis at Symbol Craftsman. He ha- he's got his own sound. Nikki Moon at Nikki Moon Custom Symbols. He's got his own sound. And so then artists are starting to connect with the makers and they're starting to see like, instead of this kind of brand loyalty thing, like I kind of hate brand loyalty. I want to just be able to play anything and everything. So I kind of want to foster that sort of mentality in people and say, okay, I don't want you necessarily to be exclusively Timothy Roberts. Your symbols are all my symbols. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to, to realize that like me as a maker, I have a certain sound. If you, if you connect with that sound, great. I will sell you a symbol all day. I'm not trying to push you away or, or send you somewhere else. I'll sell you a symbol, but maybe you want Mangiello's sound. Like he's got a sound that's different from mine. Maybe you want uh, Matt Bettis's sound or Craig Lawrence's sound. And maybe you also want to mix and match and say, like, I want a Craig Lauritsen and I want a Dave Collingwood and I want a Timothy Roberts symbol. And that's going to make up my set. And it becomes so much more interesting that way. It's like we can actually actually foster inspiration on the drums by not being so like close fisted about my symbols are the best or like, don't go to him. His symbols suck. My symbols are great. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of hate that stuff. And I've experienced a lot of that stuff in the mute, in the, in the music world and kind mm-hmm. of the the performance side of it is just so cutthroat. People are mean. They're yeah. straight up mean. They are straight up backstabbing. And it's like, man, I got into music because I I loved music. I didn't get into music to try and cut down other people. Like, um, and I think that there's a, enough people out there like that that mm-hmm. we're starting to kind of gather in this community of people, and people are discovering that that exists. And it's, it's like a rising tide lifts all boats kind of situation. Oh, totally. that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, you know, like you said, things are changing now in the community. I think people are kind of getting fed up with, like you said earlier, purchasing a symbol for 700 bucks or more and you get them home and they just, they just don't sound good and you can't return them. You know, <laughs> you kind of stuck with them. So it's great that companies like you, I mean, not companies, but individuals like you, craftsmen like you can actually uh, help people refine that investment into something new. That's yeah. a total new idea I've never even, even thought about. I think that's so really, really neat that you're doing that. Thanks, yeah. Um, 
so if people want to do that, what's the best way to get a hold of you if they want to refine their symbol? Yeah, so I, I've tried to make it as simple as humanly possible. So if you go to reveriedrums.com, I have a shop page, and then there's a little category called symbol mods, and you just click on that, and it, it's got three different types of mods. There's I do a lot of repairs, so if, got, if guys have like a, a beloved symbol and it's got a little crack in it, I'll, re, I'll do repairs. I'll do uh, typical modifications, which are usually hammering and or lathing mm -hmm. uh, to dial in a certain sound, and then there's also patina modifications and i've kind of developed this really funky crazy patina mod where you can just add a ton of gunk to a symbol to make it really dry and earthy mm -hmm. sounding um and so you can go there and just a couple buttons and you've ordered a modification and then we exchange an email and and uh, the website charges for shipping so all you do is just box the thing up and then send us the weight and the dimensions and i email a shipping label so that I try to make that as easy as possible. And then on that same shop page, you can uh, see the drums that we make, these percussion accessories that we make. And then there's also a, uh, a, a page for my batch drops. I'll drop like 10 to 15 symbols uh, every couple of weeks or so. And then you can also order a symbol commission, which is just a totally custom symbol. And again, I'm, I'm emailing constantly all, all day. I'm emailing people. So it's a, it's very much like a, you know, if you're going to order something from our company, then you're going to be talking to me and or my wife, you know, and um, yeah, and we go from there. That's fantastic. Um, so what would it cost to have a symbol modified? Is there like a per hour charge? Is there a base fee? Or I noticed that with one of them, you mentioned that you can have like one modification to it that's included yeah. in whatever the price is. Can you talk a little yeah, bit about yeah. that? So the, the, the main designator is the symbol, the symbol modification product. And you go into that and you can do any and everything to your symbol. So there are people that want like a thousand grams removed. They want it heavily hammered. They want a heavy patina. They want a crack repair. And it's kind of all in that. Uh, the pricing breakdown for repairs is like 50 bucks uh, before shipping for a modification that includes a little bit of laving and hammering that starts at 85. And then it can go upwards of 150 kind of around 150 bucks so I, I try to make it as affordable as possible uh, if i were to do an hourly rate it would be more expensive right uh, and what's great about the modification thing is is it's like it's a great way for me to uh keep refining my craft and keep new symbols coming in and i'm able to like really keep a gauge on what's out there you know and and oftentimes i'm not getting the good symbols obviously because mm -hmm. they're, they're sending them to me to have them changed so uh, that, uh, that's really informed a lot of my original symbols and, and it's great. Cause I've, I've got, it's, it's an amazing teaching tool for me to show an apprentice, Hey, this is how I'm going to modify the symbol. Watch me do it. And then I can kind of get them into the world. And, you know, the goal is eventually to have a couple guys that are, that apprentice under me and where we make the symbols together. Cause you start hitting that cap of what you can do by yourself, which we're, we're getting pretty close to that now. I mean, 50 bucks for a symbol repair is incredibly reasonable. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's really a really good price. Which so, I, with that, I mean, it, it becomes a volume game. Like, so if we were to yeah. get into kind of industry stuff, like you, there's the boutique side and the, the volume side and, you know, boutique products are just more expensive because it is uh, so much more labor and right. uh, labor. There's so much more labor. There's so much more time. There's so much more expertise going into it. Mm -hmm. And so with my company, I've tried to sort of land in the middle so that I, like, I could be really responsive. I can make stuff that's affordable to working musicians, but then it's also still got the artisan craftsman thing with it. 
Um, I, I, I just find that I don't like to land in one camp or the other. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? I try to like do what I can to be as, as good as I can be sort of in the middle of that. And I would rather working drummers play my stuff anyway. You know, not, right. I want anyone and everyone to be able to have access to it, obviously. And I've got some people that are, you know, doctors and lawyers that buy my stuff and it's in their little drum room. And it's, that's great. I love that. Mm -hmm. I also love it when there's working drummers that, you know, play gigs that only pay 50 bucks, you know, and, and mm -hmm. they, but they can afford a symbol of mine. You know what I mean? Right. So. That's fantastic. So we, we weren't able to hit the 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Too much fun. We're having too much fun. <laughs> the thing is i'm getting to the point where i could ask i could continually go so i'm trying to uh oh, yeah. try to mod modify my uh my questions here um yeah. so let's talk a little bit about the panel what can people expect when they see you will it be meet and greet afterwards can they talk to you yeah yeah so um on saturday at the at the chicago drum show there is going to be uh, a block of time where it's going to be presentations so uh, i believe it's eight symbolsmiths and we all have like a 30 minute block and you can see the schedule and um, Eric Binder is going to be the guy that I think uh, facilitates it, or is like he might be the MC or something. Uh, but he's kind of coming in talking about because he's he's very knowledgeable as a drummer, very knowledgeable about cymbals. So uh, he'll kind of introduce people. Everyone's going to have a different shtick. I don't really know what I'm going to say, but I, I, I'll just probably go up there and like talk a little bit about what I do, and then maybe ha answer some questions or whatnot. And um, generally speaking, I'm. I'm just going to speak about uh, the projects that I'm working on now. The, the symbol, I've got all kinds of different symbol series. We didn't talk necessarily about my, what I would consider my voice, the kind of things, the sounds I'm after. So all of that will be at the panel. That's kind of what I'm going to dive into. Uh, and then Sunday, the day after is going to be a round table with all of us. Okay. Uh, and so I th maybe that is actually where, where Eric is going to be uh, facilitating the conversation. Um and so that'll be kind of a, a discussion. We, we all know each other. We're all buddies. We've all interacted online uh, before. So it'll it'll be a really fun time. I'm going to also have a booth at the Chicago show. So you'll be able to check out the cymbals and drums and accessories that we make. And um, I'm really excited. It, it, the Chicago show is something I've been wanting to go to for or exhibit at for years now. So this, this should be really fun. But hey, Timothy, thank you so much. This was so amazing to get to know you. Um, I'm excited to... Um, see your presentations at the Chicago Drum Show. Uh, this will be a, a really fun experience. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate it. This has been a production of the Drumming News Network. All rights reserved. All media is owned by the respective parties. This episode cannot be distributed or copied in any form. Please visit drummingnewsnetwork.com daily to keep up on all the latest drumming news. Copyright 2023.